This is Speaking of Faith's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Barbara Kingsolver. She's the author of Animal, Vegetable, Miracle. I spoke with her on May 2, 2007, from the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was in the studios of public radio station WRTI in Philadelphia. This interview is included in our show, The Ethics of Eating. Download the MP3 of the produced show at speakingoffaith.org. People have told me about it, though. Okay. And uh, I think so we I have, understand. I think we have a common friend in Carrie Newcomer, among others. Oh, maybe. really? Yes. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just, excuse me just a second. Mm-hmm. I'm getting a really bad echo of myself. Yeah, you're you're very loud in my headphones, so maybe that's a volume issue at this end. What do you think? Yeah, unfortunately, it's coming from yeah. that end. It's okay. not okay. from this end. Is it I, I didn't have the headphones on until just a second ago. Okay. Um, why don't you talk to me a little bit? Let me see if, if you're okay. still hearing that echo. I can't believe you're friends with Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Yeah, she's, she's amazing. Are you she still is. hearing she, the echo? No, this is so much better. Right. Oh, you know what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do hear it. Okay. It's it's quieter when I'm quieter. Mm-hmm. Isn't that funny? Well, yeah. <laughs> um, tell me something mundane, like uh, what you had for... Where are we? Lunch. <laughs> and let's um, see if you hear it when you're speaking. I, actually, I'm here in Philadelphia. Oops, I keep getting caught on Oh, you're wire. in Philadelphia? I'm, yeah, I'm in oh. Philadelphia oh. Uh, for the last two hours or something. <laughs> and uh, we arrived just in time for a, um, a, another a, a radio show. And then I said, do you have a farmer's market here? And they <laughs> said, we have the oldest farmer's market in the country. So we got to run down there and walk around and see the wonderful, hmm. um, mostly Amish farmers selling their goods and, hmm. um, and eat lunch. How's, and how's that sounding? Are you, are you hearing it? It's much still? better. Yeah. It's, I, I lost her. Yeah. Oh, there you're back. Yeah, the, oh, it's back. Okay. Um, it's the, it's my doppelganger. <laughs> it's just, it's just technology. Technology has it. countless it's the, tricks. It's the evil Barbara trying to come into our conversation. <laughs> um, okay. How, now, I know you're very soft, but are you, are you, can um, you, can you, can, how's this? Am I better? Am yeah. I worse? Are you, are you still hearing an echo of your own voice? I, let me see. Okay. I am not. All right. Up. It's it's very faint. I can hmm. deal with it now. Okay. It's... I don't think it can be headphone volume at this end because... Okay. Um, is you... it going to be okay? I'm, I'm all right. Yeah, I know. I'm. I, it's really low for me. Um, you, you're hearing the echo too much? All right. I, I don't want you to have that echo because it can be very distracting. It, it stops is. you I've... from thinking. It really does. Mm-hmm. I, I've, I've been through that before. Yeah. In the in the worst way. <laughs> well, it's but just I, impossible. You can't carry on a conversation, even when it's you know, yeah. It's there. it's sort of like those overseas phone calls. Right. They, they used <laughs> the way they used to be before the satellites. Mm-hmm. I guess when it went through the cable under mm-hmm. the ocean or something, and there was always this little delay. Right. Right. And it was it never the happens. most distracting yes. thing. You yes. wouldn't think that an extra second would. Right. Makes such a difference in the conversational flow, but oh, it no. does. It's impossible. Are how my um, producer is asking if your headphones are up very high? Uh, 
Do you, is that the, you want to know, Mitch? Is this could something ask, that I can? I wonder if the engineer there could uh, could lower them a little bit. Mitch thinks there is help. there is a headphone control right where those uh, volume control where those headphones are plugged in. Okay. Uh, right to the uh, side of you there. Um, Which way does it? Go? But the headphones in there are generally very low to begin with. Um, which so, way should I turn to turn them uh, down? Clockwise or counter? Clockwise to increase and counterclockwise to decrease. Okay. I just turned my volume down. Okay. I don't know if I can hear, though. Can I hear? Oh, no. You need to be able to hear. Oh, I can hear you fine. Okay. I can hear myself much less fine, but that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I, I already know what I'm going to say. <laughs> well, actually, well, I don't, but I'll, I know, I'll know right after I say it. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we should start talking and... Um, and if it if that if you're hearing that if it's distracting then we need to okay think of well it. I also wanted to before before mm-hmm. we begin I'd love to know I, I mean I think I understand in a general way the the scope of your show but mm-hmm. if you have a, a okay a, some some sense of how you'd like to take this okay um, well we call this public radio's conversation about religion meaning ethics and ideas. Um, it's we, we don't just talk about religion. We talk about any subject. In fact, we've done a pretty interesting range of programs that have some kind of environmental aspect in the last six mm-hmm. months or a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just ask a different kind of question of them. Um, mm-hmm. I don't... Um, so I don't know how different this is going to be from other interviews you've done, but we, you know, we speak in depth and we speak about the moral and ethical implications of the subject. And what I would like to do is, um, is spend, uh, you know, most of our time talking about the book you've just written and, and, and what that means and, and, mm-hmm. and also talk about some of the larger issues, um, and how you're thinking about what's happening in our world. I mean, you know, you were one of your chapters and the, when you're, when you're doing the harvesting of the turkeys that, you know, that you, t- you know, Hurricane Katrina was happening. And I, I want to talk mm-hmm. about, you know, not just, this subject, but the larger context of what's happening in the society and the world as you process mm-hmm. these experiences. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I would like to start in a place that I do start all my conversations. Everyone I interview is not religious, and, and they're religious in very different ways. But mm-hmm. I do like to start by asking if there was a religious aspect to your childhood, a religious background to your life. Okay, are are we actually starting? I, I think we are. <laughs> Unless, and just <laughs> stop, stop if if you're um, having trouble with that, with the echo again. Okay. Okay. So mm-hmm. you just asked that question. Okay. Um. Yeah. And uh, also, this is not live. You know, we'll edit it later, so right. it gets to be I, a real conversation. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, I would say that I was raised with very strong spiritual values um and that means as opposed to material values mm-hmm. understand that spiritual matters are always more important than material things um as long as you have enough to eat uh, when you right. don't then material <laughs> things matter more than anything right, i guess right. but but we did and i was raised in a rural place where i think community values and a, a kind of a community standard of um, giving and being responsible to one's neighbors was really the most important thing. Hmm. Hmm. And it seems to me that every book I write really returns to that. Um, the question of how an individual 
um, can be oneself and still remain um, conscious of one's debt to the community. Hmm. Now, I, I do want to say, tell you that I, I think The Poisonwood Bible is one of the great novels of our time. <laughs> and I, I quote, Thank you I so quote much. from it in, in a book that I just published. Um, um, and I know that's not our subject today, but I, I am intrigued uh, in this context um, of your these spiritual values that you just mentioned and your love and knowledge of the natural world you became in you studied evolutionary biology um that you did you did spend two years or was it two years in africa when you it, were a girl it was a, a bit less than that yeah okay. i i always say i went to africa instead of second grade <laughs> okay and you know i'm just curious if, as you look back on that how that influenced um what you just described your sense of of spirituality and and also your sense of the natural world. Oh, I have no doubt that it changed me forever because as a seven-year-old, I had my eyes open to the fact mm. that people live in incredibly different ways the world over, and a lot of them live without plumbing or electricity, and that in one culture people who describe themselves as poor might be considered fabulously wealthy in another, but the more um, materially depauperate of those two cultures is not necessarily the worse off. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Could be, but not necessarily. Mm -hmm. It was very interesting to me also to, to live as a minority. We were the only white people in the village where we lived and um, the only white children that a lot of people had seen and that was really good for me too to understand what that's like to be stared at and um, um, to have make have people make presumptions about me because of the color of my skin that was an indelible change for me and so I came back um home to our little town in Kentucky to live in a different way, I have no doubt. I didn't really think about it very much at the time, but as soon as I began uh, thinking about social responsibility and reading more broadly, I read in high school the Doris Lessing novels uh, from the Children of Violence series, which are all about um, um, civil rights, the apartheid in in Rhodesia and uh, Mm -hmm. the place where she grew up. Right, and and um, w- women's issues and um, racial uh, equality. And uh, I just, I suppose, became more aware of all of those issues than, than most children. Right. Well, you had a when context I, for reading that that most American children wouldn't have. Yeah, I think that's true. Mm-hmm. The, I, I wrote that book. I wrote The Poison of the Bible for other reasons. I I always wanted to write a big novel about Mm. um, imperialism and attitude and carrying one, carrying attitudes from one place to another. Um, And so um, 
This is funny. I'm, <laughs> I'm straying from the subject of the. Oh, karma, okay. Well, all right. Well, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll come. We'll come back to that a little bit <laughs> okay. at the end. Okay. I um. Okay. Well, let me just you know let's say for example, um, last year I interviewed Wangari Matai, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, who is a great Kenyan environmentalist, mm-hmm. and she talked to me about drought and encroaching desert, and I I think that uh, those very dramatic manifestations of whatever's happening to climate <laughs> in our time uh, we think of as, as happening in a place like Africa. But you, in fact, the story you tell in your new book um, takes place, uh, be- begins as you are leaving uh, the American desert <laughs> of Tucson. Yeah, Tucson, Arizona. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I think that you, you, know, you suggest that you were also in that place facing climate change and kind of an unsustainable ecology in the face. Um, and in we, fact, what we think of as a very successful American city. It's true. People are m- moving to the Sun Belt in droves, but um, I, was becoming increasing, I was becoming increasingly conscious of it, as um, uh, of my city as something like a space station. Because <laughs> er- every unit of food that people consumed there had to be moved in from someplace else. The water was moved there from somewhere else. It didn't exactly belong to us in the most um, biological sense. And um, I, I didn't feel comfortable with that. We moved to southwestern Virginia for a lot of reasons. It's it's very near where I grew up in Kentucky. We were really coming home right? Uh, to be near extended family, and we had planned to move to this farm for a very long time. So it wasn't that we fled the desert because we didn't love it anymore. I, I don't want to say that. We did. But when we made this move, we were very conscious of how we were going to a place that could sustain us in a different way. And we undertook this project to try to really live in a, in a sustainable way and get our food locally and attend to our local food chain. And we did that because of a, of a feeling of uh, sort of an obligation to um, a lot of community values, the farming community, the farming economy, and also the biological community and the, and the world that we live in. But, you know, you tell the story um, in in between your story. You tell the story of how we as a culture got to this place that we don't we don't live on a food that is grown around us and that we've even lost our we we don't even know that. Um. (laughs) Yeah, we've we've forgotten even to ask the question, where did our food come from? It, Mm -hmm. It. doesn't even seem to bother us that most of our food may have come from China or Argentina or a combination of the two milled together in some third location, that so much of our food travels great distances to reach us using an enormous amount of fossil fuels, leaving an enormous um, carbon footprint, while at the same time we're turning our backs on the farmers who may be struggling to survive in our own um, in our own region, we're not doing it on purpose. Right. We've right. We've we don't even know. Forgotten how to think about it. We've forgotten even how to ask, uh, how to look for what's in season at this moment. Mm-hmm. And that's really the main thing we wanted to address in this book: to just gently tell a story that would nudge 
people back into their own uh, food system a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it was interesting to me to hear that that this practice of eating fruits and vegetables that were grown in faraway California was originally you know, a luxury uh, for very rich people, right? That that they might have, I don't know, an orange it, at their dinner table. Yeah, it was like a a, a party trick mm-hmm. to to produce lettuce in the middle of winter in in the Midwest. Just a handful of people could afford it, mm-hmm. and it was probably considered bizarre by the neighbors who were much more sensible and. To tell you the truth, humans, for all of history until right around the time of World War II, have eaten locally, uh, a local organic food uh, that was produced sustainably. That's a normal way to eat. And it's kind of funny that in just a couple of generations, we have come so far from that, that returning to it is, is, um, is something special that has a name. <laughs> what is that name? Well, uh, they're um, eating locally. People, yeah, uh-huh. eating locally. Uh-huh. Um, just uh, or locavores were called. Now it's funny when we began this project, there wasn't any name for it, but mm-hmm. uh, now now people uh, speak of locavores. Well, you know, here is an irony I would articulate. Um, as you say, you you've written a book about spending one year with your family doing something that feels astonishing and uh, and even privileged, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, like, it, 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 the time that you had, the, the, uh, the space in your life, the security, uh, the choice to move to this other home, um, and yet you're writing about something, you're writing about a way of living that, as you say, is the way human beings lived forever. And I, I, I suppose most people in the world <clears throat> still live as a matter of survival. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and so it's 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 pretty funny that in our culture, it's um, very exotic what it, you did. It's, well, it is. I mean, it's 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 so normal what we did. But it, there's also um, there's also a kind of bias in our culture that we're eating organically and and this local cuisine thing is elite. That it's mm-hmm. something that only privileged people can do. That's nonsense. It's really returning to. Um, what's normal for humans if we can regain some control over our own um, communities? I'd like for you to explain something to me that I, I don't quite understand. You, you're right, it feels elite. And the truth is that although I think organic produce is more and more available and people are more aware of it and more people are buying it, it's still the expensive, it's an elite option in a sense. You talk a lot about the hidden costs of the food that's cheaper, that we've gotten used to, that comes from far away. Why do those costs not turn up in my grocery bill and the cost of organic food does? Because you're paying for them um, on a different tally, mostly through your taxes. Um, the the farm bill, which is renegotiated every five to seven years and, in fact, is being renegotiated right now, sets food policy in our country, and it gives billions and billions of dollars of subsidies to mostly producers of commodity crops, uh, wheat, corn, and soybeans that get turned into things like high-fructose corn syrup mm-hmm. and um, um, feedlot 
grain for cheap hamburgers. So that makes these foods cheap. You're paying for it. You're just paying for it through your taxes. And also, um, we're paying for it <laughs> through our children. Uh, we're we're creating an enormous environmental debt, which will have to be paid later because um, this kind of industrial agriculture, of course, erodes topsoil. It um, destroys um, water systems, and it does all kinds of damage to the land that can be repaired only slowly and expensively, if at all. Mm -hmm. So we're deferring a lot of the costs. But our policy that we vote for, that we ostensibly support uh, through our um, elected legislators, our policy makes um, this kind of food, what we call junk food, makes it cheap, while uh, organic growers have to pay out of their own pockets for their certification and their oversight. Um, So policy makes those foods expensive. So we've reversed uh, uh, the order of things, and we're scratching our heads wondering why. Um, If we care, we could address that and try to change Mm. our policy. Um, Meanwhile, it's absolutely true that many people have extremely limited food choices in this country, and I do know that there are large urban areas where people's only uh, grocery option is is a, a convenience market. But for those of us who do have other choices, who can go to the farmer's market, find local farmers, reward them for bringing in their produce, um, we improve the odds that more people can afford it and that it will expand into other areas. There are, in in uh, a city near where I live, for example, there's a... a a vegetable bookmobile, essentially. Really, it's a it's a, it's a, a, a farmers market on a on a school bus oh. that drives around in uh, the low income neighborhoods and sells vegetables oh. at, at at a very reasonable cost. So, um, if we want it, if we support it, these things can change. Hmm. You obviously went into this with a tremendous amount of um, knowledge and planning. You'd always been a gardener. Um, you knew about farming, and, and you're a scientist. But I wonder, um, and you, 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 you write about the year in, in great detail in the book, but I, I wonder if you could just uh, say, you know, what, what surprised you the most about that, the experience when you were actually living it? I think... What surprised me the most is that we didn't really miss anything. Hmm. We went into it probably thinking too much about what we weren't not going to be able to have. You know, oh, my goodness, no strawberries in January. You know, (laughs) it's easy to get hung up on what you don't have. Everybody (laughs) knows that. But when we changed our thinking and began... uh, When we changed our thinking... And started every meal with the question, what do we have? What's coming in right now? What's in season? What do we have plenty of? Mm. It became really a long exercise in gratitude. It was so much fun, and it was so reinforcing to the culture of our family. I think food culture and the way we look at food in this country has so much to do with why we we acquiesce to a complete loss of control of our of right. our food system and our food sources in our culture we 
we generally lack strong regional traditions of food that tie us to our place and our people. You know, specific food traditions as they have in Italy, for example, or in India or Mexico or really almost anywhere. Um We seem to be a little at sea in this country uh, as a result uh, when it comes to food rules. And um, I think that we're behaving as if we're in search of some kind of food Leviticus to save us from from the simple (laughs) royal of cheap fats and carbohydrates. I mean, honestly, I mean, if you look at the the bookstore shelves, they're crammed with diet books. Yes. And I wanted to I wanted to note this, that it's right when we when we talk about correcting this knot we're in and addressing obesity and all of that. We talk about replacing bad habits with habits that are good for you. <laughs> it's the <laughs> language of sin. Yes. It's as if we are right. afraid of our food, right? Um, which is reasonable enough because we don't know it. How can we trust it if we don't know what hemisphere it came from? But, but, you know, but you, we know, do. you know that in the arena of food, the ethical choice is also the pleasurable choice. In this case, it is. I really, <laughs> I'm really in favor of throwing out this language of sin and talking about being bad when you're sitting down to a good meal because mm-hmm. the ethical choice of of supporting your local farmer, getting rid of the fossil fuel guzzling, you know, industrial pipeline also tastes better. Mm-hmm. And it does involve cooking, but that's also such a wonderful thing to come home to. I think that the planning of beautiful meals and investing one's heart and time in their preparation is the opposite of self-indulgence. Um, you know, kitchen-based family gatherings are, are so nourishing and soulful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that delight uh, in cooking, the art of it and the pleasure of it comes through so clearly in your book and, and right now in your voice as you're talking about it. But for me, where what that touches on is another drought in American life, and that is the drought of time, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it sounds to me like you, I know, I know you were probably writing, but you were really able to be present uh, to your garden, to your home, to your family, to that, to that lifestyle. And uh, that is something that feels unattainable to me and I think a lot of people who just feel like we're just working and juggling children is is tricky. Well, you know, I was doing that too. I've, I've been a working mother for 20 years, mm-hmm. uh, so I don't remember any other way of being. And I'm, I didn't really, you know, I didn't write about writing in the book, but I'm at my desk pretty much eight to five every day, like so many other people. I do have an easy commute. There's no doubt. <laughs> yeah. But um, my work life is, is profoundly consuming and, and often difficult and frustrating. And so for me, walking away from my desk job at five o'clock and walk, or, or 530 or six or whenever, and going out to the garden and just taking a hoe to some weeds always feels so good. But this is work that, that I do mostly on the weekends and in using evenings. Mm. And and so is cooking. We do easy cooking in the um, weeknights and our more elaborate uh, <laughs> extravaganzas on the weekends. And certainly things like canning and putting up we do on summer weekends when we have friends over to help. And the, the thing is... 
Um, we all have the same 24 hours in our days. It's a question of what what we do with them. And, you know, of course, we don't have as much control over that as we'd like. But it's so interesting to me when I'm in Europe and spend time with my Spanish friends or Italian friends. Um, and they're working people, too. They're women who work in offices or, you know, they're editors or, or laboratory um, scientists. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they're out of work, they head straight for the market. And they go down to see what fish is, has come in or what what greens do they have now at this season. And even at high-powered business lunches with editors in France, this has happened to me so many times. These women in their fashionable shoes and business suits will stray from... Uh, post-colonial literature over onto the subject <laughs> of of mushrooms, you know, and there's no shame in their enthusiasm for cooking. They they feel that cooking for their families is a really important part of who they are. This, I think, is at um, at the heart of the problem for 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 a lot of us. Anyway, I think I belong to the generation of women who grew up thinking that. Um, um, walking away from the kitchen was right. walking away from some kind of slavery. You know, it's how yes. we think about yes, it. Yes, you're right. If we if we thought of cooking as this great pleasure that we had to wait, that we could look forward to at the end of the working day, I suppose that would change it. it if it if mm-hmm. we look at it as family time, as entertainment, as um, uh, spiritually enlightening even you know if we looked at it as a as a destination rather than a rock in the road yes i think we would do more of it and not every day maybe not um not on monday nights okay but uh definitely on saturday mm-hmm. and cooking it, it, that is important i mean i i really don't believe in telling anybody what to eat or what to do but cooking is kind of the linchpin in the local eating um, equation. Oh boy, was that a mixed metaphor? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But it's not just about bu- buying. It's not just about what you buy or where you buy it, but but preparing it. Right, taking it home mm-hmm. and making something Maybe of it yours. because because local food consists of ingredients. It's not usually things with barcodes, um, <laughs> and that's that's where the ex- the matter of expense comes in as well. When people think that eating healthy foods and organic foods is expensive, they're often looking at barcodes. But if you begin with simple whole foods and look at them as ingredients for making meals, you you end up with a much lower cost. Mm. It's it's pretty generally affordable. You know, I think I found one of the most moving chapters of the book uh, when you describe harvesting the meat, as you say, because you're not Mm -hmm. just talking about growing vegetables. Um, uh, You also raised turkeys and roosters and killed them. Mm -hmm. And as you say, you know, you tell a story of at dusk sitting down to feast on cold bean salad, sliced tomatoes with basil, blue potato salad, and meat that had met this day's dawn by crowing. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) that is a part of... uh, of what we eat, I don't know, even of just the fact of life and death that mm-hmm. we American consumers are very removed from. Tell me what when you say this is the big difference between talking about harvesting meat uh, and and the way we normally think about 
Yeah, I used to think it was a euphemism to use that word harvest. Mm -hmm. I don't anymore. And it's funny, funny, just now I I reacted a little oddly when you said you raised chickens and then killed them. (laughs) That that word, if you think about it, the way we use it is a a murder, a homicide. Well, we talk about slaughterhouses. Well, or we say, "Whoops, I killed my African violet." Um, it, it it suggests some accidental or intentionally mean spirited act. Um, we're back at sin again, aren't we? Yeah, we <laughs> yes. are. Whereas harvesting a rooster is allowing this animal to achieve achieve its final glory. It was hatched. It was born for one purpose on this earth. These. These varieties of animals were invented by humans. They're not wildlife. They were bred over over centuries for the purpose of being food. And um, that is the legacy that they they live for, frankly. They don't know it, but they don't know otherwise either. They really, I mean, I've spent a lot of time around poultry. They don't really have emotional affairs. They have... <laughs> They have rights, I believe. I think they have the right to a dignified existence. I really um, enjoy seeing my turkeys out on pasture foraging, you know, living under the sunshine, living lives of essential turkiness. And I hate (laughs) thinking about um, the factory farm turkeys that are the kind you buy in the grocery store, which live in big metal warehouses just crammed as tightly as they can possibly be packed in, never seeing the sun in their entire four-month lives, um, uh, bred for such docility and um, <laughs> sort of large-breasted deformity. They can't mm. even, they can't fly or even reproduce. You know, I don't like that, and I frankly, myself, don't eat that kind of meat, although I know plenty of people do, uh, without really thinking much about the history of that food. Myself, if I'm going to eat an animal, I I want its life to have had some dignity, um, some, some, you know, poultry joy, because I I do believe Mm -hmm. there is such a thing, and for it to um, end its life with dignity and and leave its legacy on the table. It's a peculiar thing. Another fascinating thing about our culture is that we confuse longevity with happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, turkeys don't want to live to be a hundred years old. They they don't <laughs> want to know their grandchildren. Believe me, um, <laughs> they couldn't pick their grandchildren out of a lineup. I know this for a fact. <laughs> You you know you make an interesting point that 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 plants also live that fruits and vegetables are also living things that we they are that we and kill in a sense again not to use that 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 hard word but <laughs> but we don't think about that either. I don't know anyone who does except me. I mean, I, <laughs> I'm such a dope. I get sentimental about cutting the heads off the broccoli um, because I I I really enjoy the process of their lives and yet. I do realize that's what they're here for, but it is funny. We get all sentimental about um, about cutting the heads off chickens, but not cutting the head of an onion into a million pieces. Um, but we, but we, we, are, also, we, we also uh, don't think twice about committing a willful streptococcus massacre. You know, if our if our kid is sick, we give them penicillin, and and you know that's that's mm-hmm. that's a genocide on the microbial scale. But we don't worry about it. 
But I mean, our, our culture, we, we don't like to think about death or, or mortality or finitude no. in general. I mean, what this makes me think right. of is that, in fact, we even translate that, that attitude we take to ourselves and our bodies. We, we've translated that into shutting our awareness of, of that aspect of our life of eating as well. We do. And what it comes back down to is we just don't know it. Mm-hmm. Most people know animal life in only two forms. One is pets, which are junior people, let's face it. Um, They're just, you know, they are members of the family. You can't imagine, you know, harvesting that. It just, it's not appropriate. Or, Or wildlife. But farm animals, livestock, are a third category of life with which most people really uh, have no familiarity. Mm-hmm. And so it's very easy to project our own um, wishes and values onto these animals uh, without really knowing whether that makes any sense or not. Now, in the chapter in your book, Animal, Vegetable, Miracle, where you describe the day in which you harvested the animals, um, y- news was coming in of Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder how you experienced and kind of processed the larger implications of those events, perhaps differently because of that experiment you were conducting and living sustainably. I think so much all the time about the effects of our consumption and particularly the the small, relatively small number of, particularly about the relatively small number of us in the world who are consuming the great majority of the world's resources, burning so much of the world's fossil fuels, um, contributing so much to global climate change, which is beginning to pound at our shores and the shores of many other countries. But we're not, we haven't felt the damage yet so much here, but we began to on that weekend. And it really felt like, it was a, such a great sadness because it felt like this, um, this terrible uh, coming home to roost. Um, it it became clear to me that uh, the numbers up on this, the way that we consume, we have yet, it seems to me in this country, we have yet to assign any moral value to the overconsumption of the world's limited resources. Um, it to our like overconsumption. Yeah, to mm-hmm. to um, it, if you can afford it, it's okay to use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems to be the only rule. Um, that can't go on forever. And it's interesting to me that um, let me think about how to say this. Um, it seems to me that um, eating food that burns up a piece of the world and makes life. Okay, let me back up and say. Okay, that's um, right. Take your time. There are many, many paths toward finding a better and more sustainable way to live in the world. Um, some people do it by giving up meat. I, I did it by 
giving up bananas <laughs> because <laughs> okay. I, when I think about all those fossil fuels that are burned in a, a refrigerated cargo hold to get that stuff to me, I didn't want to do that. I didn't. That didn't seem cruelty free to me. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. I wanted to find another way to live um, that would not. Um, that would not. I wanted to find another way to live that would brighten the prospects of my children's time on this earth. Hmm. I mean, here's something you wrote of of Hurricane Katrina happening um, in the middle of this year. Uh, you wrote that an analysts of current events were mostly looking to blame administrators. Fair enough, but there were also, it seemed, obvious vulnerabilities here. Whole populations depending on everyday long-distance lifelines, supplies of food and water and fuel, and everything else that are acutely centralized. That's what we consider normal life. Now nature had written a hugely abnormal question across the bottom of our map. Say some more to me about what that abnormal question was. Well, the question is... Do you think you can keep doing this without paying some kind of a price? Mm. Um, okay. Decentral. De- um, let me see. Um, I, I don't know. I sort of finished the thought there in writing. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> and I also sense. Um, and I'm and now I'm looking at, at the sweep of your writing over say, the last ten years. Um, it seems to me that that September 11th also kind of formed the sense of urgency that you have now. Um, you talked then about the prideful wastefulness, our prideful wastefulness as a nation. I think you just described that in more detail. Tell me, connect yeah. the dots. Oh, go on. Well, sometimes I think it's prideful. Sometimes I think it's just clueless. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, no, <laughs> and, and it, I mean that to describe myself as much as anyone. We don't have a clue sometimes about how or what we're wasting. Mm-hmm. It's so easy for us to have, for example, foods that were grown on the other side of the world and brought to us without any idea who grew it, who worked for what low wage to harvest it, who had to breathe pesticides in order to put it on a truck. You know, those those questions have, uh, there. a curtain has been drawn mm-hmm. over the whole process uh, so that we've come to look at our food as a product. Mm-hmm. It isn't. Those are moral it's, questions. It's all, it's all a process, and those are moral questions. If we care to look, to draw back the curtain and look, um, it isn't all bad news. There are ways... Um, to make this process um, a happier one, one that really serves our community uh, instead of either ignoring it or damaging it. I think um, the subject of food seems daunting because there are so many different questions, so many different problems. And that's something that um, I really thought, uh, that's something that really compelled me about writing this book, I love to start with a huge, unanswerable, um, boggling kind of question and see if I can whittle it down into the shape 
of a really good yarn. You know, I just love to see if I can give it a plot and make you laugh all along the way and maybe make you cry at the end and create something that will invite you in. And then when you're finished and you close the book, um, maybe you'll step out into the world in a slightly different way and ask your own questions and answer them in your own way. I am so sorry. That's right. That's, <laughs> that's so embarrassing. That's mine. It's not the first time it's happened in history. Um. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> um, did uh, did I did I, I get the end think, there? Are I think okay? you had finished the answer. I'm okay. not exactly sure. Um, okay. I think I just said in yeah. And, and answer the questions in your own way. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that if we turn it into a story. Um, Stories help us make sense. Oh, stories are the only thing that help us make sense. I think. I mean that that's that's how human brains are constructed. We need a story, and I think the all the oldest stories were how we taught the next generation not to make the stupid mistakes that we did. You know, where to find the food, where the wa- where to find the water, and don't go here and don't don't fall in the hole and get bit by the snake. Um, Stories are what we respond to. And, you know, you know this this fact um, of human life that, in a sense, we experience the crises of our time to be completely new and original and uniquely catastrophic, right? (laughs) Um, It's never been as bad as it is right right now. The worst century. And then... Uh, and, and at the very same, and in some, on some level, that may be true. And at the very same time, we are reliving parables and stories that play themselves out with just with different variations over and over again in human life. I think it's <laughs> not true. I mean, certainly the environmental picture is bleaker and scarier now for humans than it's ever been before. But in almost every other way we keep getting it a little more right. And I I keep, when my kids um, feel gloomy about the headlines or, you know, sort of what what kind of a mess humans have made of, Mm -mm. of, of their own relations, I say, you know what? When I started first grade... The, the the black kids weren't allowed to go to my school. They didn't even have a school. They had they went to a church up the hill. They were our schools were segregated in second grade. And um, and when you got on an airplane, the, the person sitting next to you would likely be smoking a cigarette for the entire <laughs> flight. Okay. And uh, women weren't allowed to sit on juries. I don't think in the when I was born. And we can't even imagine those things right, now. within your lifetime. Yeah, within my mm-hmm. lifetime. Mm-hmm. However, I think that that part of the problem now is we know so much. We mm-hmm. see these pictures and these pictures of other of of our own crisis. Maybe we've helped to cause and other crises and disasters and tragedies uh, and terrible headlines. And they come into our living rooms uh, and they come straight into our heads and. You know, so there's a sense in which I think that the information we have can also debilitate us, and I, I, I'm oh, feeling that that's true. With, you know, you you're saying that that uh, that we are getting some things right, but but we've never known so much about ecological catastrophe as we're learning now, and as the awareness, uh, as consciousness goes up about this now, there's this glut, right, of explaining to us how bad it is. 
how do you think how do you you know how do you think about that and how people should live with the enormity of this knowledge well i have no idea how they should live i wouldn't tell anybody else i know for myself i need to consider hope to be a renewable option <laughs> if i run out of it at the end of the day well then when i get up in the morning i put it on with my shoes i don't have another choice because i have kids if i give up on fixing what's wrong with the planet that's 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 child abuse i can't turn my back on on my kids um and when my teenager well she just turned 20 mm-hmm. um when when my older daughter sometimes confides in me that she's worried her generation won't be able to fix this big environmental damage i say you know what it's not up to your generation it's up to mine we have a now or never kind of problem on our hands and it is scary it is overwhelming right now because we're really getting the bad news we've yes. had the privilege of ignoring and the listening bad. to the bad news yeah we've we've had the privilege of ignoring the bad news for a really long time so what happens you know when you don't pay your <laughs> your credit card debt you get socked okay so we are getting socked we have a tendency to oh, well, you know, blame anybody, but especially the government, and say, well, the government needs to fix this. Well, here's the trouble. The government is us. We mm. we, we have the laws that we allow, that we're willing to put up with. Many other, I'd say almost all other industrialized countries have taken enormous steps to limit their fossil fuel consumption, to put caps on their carbon emissions. As a country, we've been very frightened about doing that. Um, We're terrified of sacrifice, it seems. We're really afraid Mm. of giving up the things that we're accustomed to. This is why I felt that an experiment like ours, um, my family's, in which we really tried to find a sustainable diet for ourselves for one year, was a wonderful exercise to discover that in fact, we can live with what people would call less. And it turned out to be not less, but just different and wonderful. And I think that in order to accept limits um, at, a, at a legal level, sort of imposed at the national level, we are individually going to have to experiment with limits that we impose on ourselves personally. Right, starting find, with ourselves. Starting, starting with our own with little ourselves. lives. Mm-hmm. Right, starting with our own little lives and um, discovering that we can live in a different way. I think this is incredibly empowering and it allows us to take the next step of, um, as a community, saying, yes, we will um, give up some things in order to make um, the world a, a cleaner um, survivable place. Mm-hmm. I want to ask if we have a hard stop at. We got started a little late. Do we have a hard stop at the at two thirty, or can we go five minutes? I just want to make sure I know how much time we have. Mitch, do you know? Okay. C- can we can we keep going? Can we go for a couple of minutes over t- over three thirty? If that. If we're Are you asking middle? me? Yes, I am. I guess. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's it's okay with me. All right. I don't see the I don't see the engineer. Okay. So he's okay. I I don't I I know we've almost been going an hour and I won't keep you longer than that. But anyway, <laughs> um, 
it's, it I'm seems, enjoying it. Good. <laughs> and it seems to me that that one thing you do in your work, one thing you offer as an antidote, if you will, to despair is simply perspective. You know, you have this sentence, uh, and I think we've all experienced this at some time, that wildness puts us in our place. And there's something liberating about that for human beings, although it's, again, counterintuitive in our culture. Um, and I wanted to ask you, um, you know, with that in mind, um, my favorite passage in the Poisonwood Bible, <laughs> which is your novel about <laughs> a missionary family in post-colonial Africa, uh, is where Ada Price, did you, did you say her name like that, Ada? Mm-hmm. Okay. But you can say it however you okay. want. Okay, well, she, she's <laughs> raised there and, mm-hmm. and then um, becomes a scientist and goes back to Africa. Mm-hmm. And there's this section, I'm going to just read a little bit of it, uh, if I can find it here. Okay, all right. Where where she is is looking at the natural world in in Africa, she write she says as a teenager reading African parasitology books in the medical library, I was boggled by the array of creatures equipped to take root upon a human body. I'm boggled still, but with a finer appreciation in the partnership. Back then, I was still a little, I was still a bit appalled that God would set down the barefoot boy and girl dollies into an Eden where presumably he had just turned loose elephantiasis, elephantiasis, and microbes that eat the human cornea. Now I understand <laughs> God is not just rooting for the dollies. <laughs> now, I have reflected a lot on that passage <laughs> as I think about things that have happened in our culture the last few years, including the the debate, the renewed, uh, I think, more isolated than the headlines would lead us to believe, but the renewed clash between biblical perspectives on life and uh, scientific perspectives on life. Um, You're an evolutionary biologist. This is connected, I think, to what we're talking about, because I I think that, to me, that passage is one of the greatest uh, paragraphs reconciling um, life as it is with what we know of science and with what we can imagine of religion. <laughs> but what I hear, so let me, let me, so I spoke with a, a, um, a scholar of Darwin a couple of years mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he said is he thinks that um, these, this clash between science and religion recurs at moments in history where people are frightened, where the world is just seems out of control and complex. You know, that's what you and I have been describing I think that's true. Yeah. I, I agree with that. We we think we're so smart, we humans. You know, we're just top heavy hominids walking around in shoes, thinking we thinking we own the place. And then, what do you know? We discover that we are animals, indeed, subject to the same biological laws as uh, as everything else. Um, subject to the same physics. Yep, gravity still applies to us. Mm. Uh, if we trip, we're going to fall down. Um, we hate that, I guess, but it sort of it sort of puts us in our place. But I happen to think it's also a wonderful place to be as a creature among creatures. I think one of the most glorious things about um, doing something as simple as 
going to the farmer's market or going to a you-pick operation, going to visit a farm and picking your own food, is to realize that it's, it, it's a really wonderful thing to be an animal living in a habitat, being a part of a food chain. There's this enormous comfort in belonging to a cycle and to see that hmm. food isn't a product but a process. This, uh, this terror of the unknown becomes much more manageable when we accept that, uh, yes, we are our biology, we really are what we eat, and um, it, it actually really tastes good. <laughs> <laughs> what, um, what stories are you looking at now or telling your children or writing about that are helping you continue to make sense of uh, what you learned in this year that you describe in your new book and the larger issues of the world we live in right now as you look out at that? It's kind of a hard question, maybe. It's so direct. I think um, one of the great things that we did learn from this year was gratitude. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the practice of being grateful for what the world gives us every day. Um, that's one of the most important gifts I try to remember um, to reinforce for my kids all the time, and they're very good at it. I mean, actually, sometimes they remind me. And the other is optimism. I think um, uh, we don't stand a chance unless we uh, we really uh, know how to hope for the best. You know, I'm, I'm comforted. You do confess um, somewhere that that like every other adult you know or most other adults you know you you do um have your own worries and that you you right you have a tendency to feel like a jerk for falling short of absolute conversion i'm comforted <laughs> i i think your book um kind of sets up a model that feels that might that feels daunting to me as a reader and that might feel daunting to others are, oh, are you having I'm, that reaction I'm or experience? Sorry. Well, I, N- no, I didn't. We didn't really. It wasn't that hard, and we didn't strive for any kind of purity. And mm-hmm. it's funny that before people read the book, they say, "Oh, well, weren't you tempted to cheat?" And "Oh, what are you eating on book tour?" And you know, stuff like that. Well, there is no cheating. This wasn't. Um, this wasn't. Uh, an exercise in purity. We we decided to do things like get fair trade coffee. We um, we did get some things from outside of our community because we wanted a happy life. We thought if we can keep ninety five percent of our food dollars inside our own community, how wonderful would that be? It's and so and we didn't want to tell a story that other people would look at and say, "Oh, how heroic they were." I could never do that. Um, I didn't. Really, of course, imagine anybody would else do exactly what we did. I mean, mm-hmm. we're we're sort of crazy. We, we we have a huge garden, and frankly, other gardeners are crazy too. Right? Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's I think it's in our DNA. But um, on the contrary, we wanted to do something that really, really seemed doable in some part. So it surprises me that. I very frequently encounter people sort of beating themselves up, saying, oh, well, I have to have, you know, at least sometimes raspberries in January. Well, that's fine, as long as we can begin to understand that it's 
an indulgence to ask right. someone well, to fly I, for me, raspberries to us in an airplane. No, that, you you know, know, that's not actually the, uh, that's not what feels hard to me. And I, I think like a lot of people, I've, I'm becoming gradually just more conscious of this and Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, mm-hmm. not desiring raspberries out of season or peaches mm-hmm. <laughs> in mm-hmm. February. Because they're horrible. It, it's rather fact, horrible. They're mushy. Right. It, it's more the incredible dedication, you know, the, the totality of the effort you made. Um, well, in part... Um, like, give me an example. Because, I, I mean, I didn't think we were that dedicated. <laughs> <laughs> well, just that you really handed your lives over to this. Well... For a period of we time. Di- well, we we really didn't. I only wrote about... The, I mean, of the million things that happened to us in that year, most of them didn't go into the book. Mm-hmm. You know, our dog died, for example, um, or, you know, and I, I broke my leg. You know, all, all, okay. all kinds of things happened that I didn't write about beca- because, for one thing, they're not, uh, they belong to us, but mainly they're not relevant. Your daughter only... went away to college. That's also exactly. something that she kind of tucks into as a, almost as an aside. Uh-huh. Right. And frankly, that was a huge yes. um, component of our emotional landscape. But this isn't really a memoir. Mm-hmm. This is a story about finding a certain path home. And so as a writer... I, I'm very disciplined about looking at the landscape of facts and picking out uh, the ones that really move the story forward. So this really is a story about the things we did that related to local food. But you know, if I if I'm thrown in everything, you, you know, you would you would see us just wander around in every direction. But. Um, but I didn't because that that would be a blog. Okay. All right. Well, no, and I, I, I get that. But I, I do think there is something edifying in that. I mean, you know, what you're saying is you, you did this. Uh, I mean, I really do think this was an act of, of discipline and, 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 a, and a, an attempt to look at the ethics and morality of um, food as well as, you know, this great the great irony we talked about as well that when you that the ethical thing to do with food is also pleasurable um but you're also saying that life went on and life had its pitfalls and uh sure it did Mm -hmm. sure it did and um i i'm sorry i (laughs) i stepped on what you were going to say but um and now i completely lost my thought i'm sorry i'm so glad this isn't life I wouldn't do that. Oh, oh, I, I know. Uh, really? Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Um, <laughs> uh, what we were really looking for without knowing this is a paradigm shift. And that always takes discipline in the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's just like taking a marriage vow or something. You know, in the beginning, you stand up in front of, you know, God and everybody and you say, forsaking all others. And you talk about how everything's going to change. And at first, it might feel um, rather strained and artificial. Ultimately, it simply becomes your life. And you don't sit around thinking, about oh well when I was single you know I didn't have to pick up my shoes or whatever um, <laughs> <laughs> it, that's how it was we kind of made these vows we are going to look really hard for a different way to eat and so that meant on the first Saturday of the 
farmer's market, even though it was snowing, it was a horrible day outside. Mm -hmm. I really would like to have just curled up with a book. But we said, well, no, we're going to do this thing, and there's almost nothing in the pantry, so we have to do it. That was forced, and it was so rewarding. We found so much more there than we expected. And that's the day right away that I understood that sometimes you have to push yourself into a new way of thinking to get to a place where you want to be that's very comfortable, that doesn't even feel like work. Hmm. It's just a shift. You know, momentum um, in our habits can be enormous, and sometimes it just takes some sort of a formal vow uh, to get us from one kind of thinking into another. Mm. And then it's easy. I'm telling you, it wasn't that hard. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm listening. <laughs> well, I think I've, I've taken enough of your time. I, I really appreciate this. It was, I've wanted to speak with you for a long time. And, uh, well, I'm, I'm so glad. I really enjoyed it. Good. Okay, well, thank you so much. And we'll be in touch with um, what we're doing with the show. I've actually just had a book out, and I've been touring, and we haven't been in full production for a little while. So we're catching our breath here, and I don't know exactly I what our schedule is going to be. feel your pain. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, and good luck to you on this book tour. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.